0: Would you bow your heads and would you pray together with me? Lord God, I pray that the words I'm about to speak and the thoughts that we think as together, we meditate on your word for us this morning. Lord, I pray that would all be truly acceptable in your sight, O oh God, who has indeed given us the gift of your righteousness to become ours. Amen. So uh, again, as we said at the beginning, we are in this series where we are studying together the book of Romans. And... Uh, um, As we look together at the book of Romans, we are going to be working our way through it kind of chapter by chapter, verse by verse. Uh, Again, want to encourage you to bring your Bibles with you to worship. If you didn't bring your Bibles and you want to use one of the Pew Bibles to kind of follow along this morning, uh, we're going to be on page 939, so the very beginning of the book of Romans. Uh, but uh, but as we get there, I just a, a couple of words of reminder, or in case you weren't with us last week. First of all, the book of Romans is this kind of amazing uh, part of the Bible. Luther said it this way. He said, this letter is really the chief part of the New Testament, and it is truly the purest gospel. It is a bright light, almost sufficient to illuminate the entire Holy Scriptures. In other words, Luther believed... That if you understood the message of the book of Romans, it was like the whole rest of the Bible made sense to you in a way that it never had before. And in fact, the reason Luther believed that is because that was actually true for him. It was the book of Romans that helped him understand what God's love and grace was really all about. Uh, by the way, Luther also believed that every single believer, every Christian, should memorize the book of Romans word for word, the whole thing. So how are you doing with that? If you don't have it memorized, that's why you bring your Bible, right? So, uh, so do that, yeah. Um, uh, just a couple other facts about the book of Romans. Again, it was written by Paul, the apostle. It was written when he was in Corinth during the winter of 56 to 57 AD. Now remember, Jesus was crucified somewhere around 30 AD. So very quickly after Jesus' crucifixion, Paul writes these words. But Paul had already been a missionary for 20 years at this point. So, uh, so these are well-thought-out words from Paul. This isn't something new he's wrestling around with. This is well-thought-out theology from the Apostle Paul. And it is a reminder, the only letter that he wrote to a church in the Bible that, uh, that he didn't found that church. If we look at the, the, his letter to the Corinthians or to the Thessalonians or to the Ephesians or to the Colossians or to the Galatians, all of those were churches that he founded as a missionary, but not the church in Rome. We believe that the Roman church started when Jews who were in Jerusalem for Pentecost and they heard Peter preach, they heard the good news about Jesus on that Pentecost day, took that good news back to Rome and began a church there. Now, by the way, one more fact about that church that we're gonna see play out in this letter. The the Jews there in Rome who worshiped Jesus in 49 AD were kicked out of Rome by the Emperor Claudius. Now, they left behind some Gentile Christians who didn't have to leave Rome, and the Gentile Christians continued sharing the good news among other Gentiles, and the church grew under under their leadership, and so then when the Jews in 54 AD, after Claudius' death, were allowed to come back to Rome, they found a big Gentile church that used to be their church. So as you can imagine, there were some tensions over that as now this church is both Jew and Gentile, maybe even predominantly Gentile, but a lot of Jews there as well. And now they've got to figure out how they sort life out together in the church. And so, so that's part of what we're going to see Paul writing about. Now, before we actually get to the text, I want to share with you one of my favorite far side cartoons, OK. Uh, remember the far side? How many of you remember that, that uh, cartoon? Yeah, great cartoon. I really miss it. I was kind of amazed. This is from '91, 1991, a long time ago. But, uh, but, but, but to, to describe the scene, if you can't see it, it's, it's entitled "God at His Computer." And there's God sitting there, presumably, and he's looking at this poor guy walking along the sidewalk. There's a piano hanging above his head, and God's finger is hovering over the smite button on the keyboard. All right. now, now, a lot of people believe that's what God does, that, that God is sitting up there in heaven watching us, just waiting to smite us if we do something wrong. You know, it's kind of a, uh, he sees you when you're sleeping, he knows when you're awake, he knows if you've been bad or good thing, even though that's not really God, that's Santa Claus, right? But I mean, that's, that, that's the idea. The idea is that God is watching and he's just waiting for you to trip up somehow, to goof off so that he can smite you, he can get you, he can punish you for your sin. And the question is, is that True. Well, we're going to see in this section of Romans. So let's take a look. Let's dive in. Um, First of all, the verses we ended with last week, Nick ended with these verses from Romans 1, 16 and 17, where Paul says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek or to the Gentile. Uh, For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, The righteous shall live by faith. So the question that we kind of left ourselves with last week is what is this righteousness of God that has now been revealed to us, that somehow comes to us, and, and it said that we receive that by faith. What is that all about? What is faith, and, and what does it mean that we have this righteousness of God? Well, in verse 18, Paul now starts this section we want to look at today, and he says this. He says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men. So that kind of sounds like the cartoon, doesn't it? That God is angry, and he's just waiting to reveal that anger, that wrath, and smite us. But, but let me ask you a question. Why would God be angry about sin Think about that for a second. Why would sin make God angry? Well, well, the answer is really pretty simple when you think about it. God created a perfect universe. God created an amazing universe. And, and in it, only good things were supposed to happen. There wasn't supposed to be any sin. There wasn't supposed to be any evil. But, but when human beings sin, they brought sin and evil and death into God's creation. And so when God looks at the earth now, When he looks at us as his people that he created, he sees that we are far less than he created us to be. He sees that we've kind of taken this beautiful gift of his creation that he's given us, and we've kind of messed it up. It is a mere shadow of what he wanted it to be, so no wonder that God feels angry about sin. He goes on to say this in in verse 19, he says, for what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. His eternal power and divine nature have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they are without excuse. In other words, what he's saying is, even if you've never read the Bible, even if you've never heard of God, if you study the world around you, it's clear that there's a God. Tony Deepman was preaching over at Green Trails uh, this week, and he and I were talking yesterday, and and he said to me, he goes, isn't it amazing that the two scientists who decoded the human genome, both of them began that process as atheists, and both of them ended that process as believers in God. One of them specifically wrote that it was his study of the human genome that led him to believe that there had to be a God even though he was racing that there wasn't one good friend of mine is Dave Newkirk. He's a member here at Trinity. He's a dentist, and uh, he's kind of an expert in the jaw and the teeth and how they all fit together and how it all works together. And uh, And he, he gets to lecture kind of all over the world about that subject, and I actually heard him lecture once, and he was describing the intricate way that your jaw works when you chew. I mean, something as simple as chewing that we take for granted is really, when you look at it, incredibly complex and incredibly amazing how it all fits and works together. And I was watching him lecture, and he's. Describing this all, and then he stops and he looks at his audience and he said, Now, if you want to believe that that climbed out of some primordial ooze, that's fine, but I think somebody designed that. He's right. You see, the fact is, when we study uh, the world around us, Paul says, it becomes evident to us that there has to be a God, that somebody designed this, somebody put this all together. And by the way, even more than that, just for a second, look ahead at chapter 2, verse 15. There he says that that not only is it evident in the world around us that there is a God, but he says they also show that the work of the law is written on their hearts, while their conscience also bears witness. In other words, what he's saying is not only is the knowledge of God evident in the world around us, if we look inside of us, we all have this kind of instinctive, people say, understanding of right and wrong. We don't don't necessarily learn right and wrong. We know right and wrong from the very beginning. And and by the way, that, that right and wrong is common among all societies. There are just certain things we know you're not supposed to do. Every society on earth has always believed that selfishness was bad and focusing on the needs of others was good. Every society on the face of the earth has always believed killing someone for no reason is bad, but helping them preserve their life is good. It's just kind of built into the fabric of the universe. C.S. Lewis said it's the best argument from his perspective that there is a God, that, that there's this knowledge of right and wrong that seems to be built into all of us, he says, that had to come from somewhere. And Paul says it came from God. God wrote that in our hearts. But there's a problem. Look at verse 21. He says, For all they knew, although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking. Literally the word there is empty in their thinking. It's a word that comes from pagan worship when they would just kind of babble and babble and babble and not really say any words and not really mean anything. He says, they became empty in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal men and birds and animals and creeping things. In other words, he says, they stopped worshiping God and they made their own idols. Now you may go, well, we don't do that, right? We don't worship idols, really? Luther says it this way, he says, anything in which you put your hope and your trust that can become an idol for you. So in other words, if you look at your bank account and you go, as long as that number's high, I'm fine, but if that number gets too low, I- I've lost all hope, then that bank account has become your God instead of trusting in the God that made you. Or if, or if uh, as long as you live in a nice, beautiful house, you-, you feel like life is good, but if you had to get rid of that house and move into a small apartment somewhere, you'd feel like you were a failure, well then, that's become your God, not the God that created you and provided for you. Or, uh, or if it's your job, your career, or mom's, if it's the fact that you're a mom and you have kids. Wh- whatever those things are, those are all great gifts from God. But if we make them our gods, if we make them the thing that decides whether we feel good or bad about our lives, whether we have our, a, a sense of peace and hope or whether we despair, if we do that, then those things become our God. And Luther says, I mean, uh, Paul says here that we all do that. We all Make other things our God. And then look at verse 24. He says, therefore, God gave them up. Now, I'm going to read you a number of different translations of that, okay? Um, The NIV says God gave them over. The New Living translation says God abandoned them. The contemporary English version says God let these people go their way. I like that one. That's pretty good. God's word says God allowed their lusts to control them. And the message maybe is the best one of all. It says, so God said, in effect, if that's what you want, then that's what you get. In other words, notice what it's saying here. It's not saying that God is up in heaven waiting for you to do something wrong so he can smite you. What it's saying is God is up in heaven going, you can do what you want to do. I will let you do what you wanna do. If if you wanna worship me, if you wanna follow me, if you wanna try to follow my plan for your life, that's great, but if you decide you wanna go your own way, you wanna decide how to live your life on your own, you wanna worship other things other than me, then I'll let you do that. And you'll have to suffer the consequences of that. So God isn't waiting to punish us. In fact, God doesn't punish us at all, he doesn't have to. We punish ourselves by the choices that we make. He goes on in, in uh, chapter 2 then to say this. He says, therefore you have no excuse, oh man, every one of you who judges. In other words, notice what he's been saying. Up to this point, he's been going, they, 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 them. And now he goes, oh, by the way, those of you that are reading this letter, they that they, it's you. You, you. You're the ones that do these things. You can almost picture the people hearing this letter from Paul read to them the first time. They're going, yeah, they do that stuff. Oh, yeah, they do that stuff. Those, those people, they're bad. And then Paul goes, well, wait a minute, you're they. And they go, went, whoa, 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 wait a minute, okay? Look at what he says. He says, for in passing judgment on one another, on another, you condemn yourself because you, the judge, practice the very same things. I read this book uh, this week called Repenting of Religion. It's really a a great book, by the way. And and he he talks about how we as Christians have fallen into this trap of becoming judgmental of others. And he describes himself sitting in a mall one day, uh, just kind of sitting there. He'd been doing some shopping, and he's just kind of people-watching, right? And he watches this one lady walk by with an ice cream cone, and he's thinking, she shouldn't be eating an ice cream cone, I'll tell you that. And he watches this guy walk by, and he's like, does he realize he's 40 years old? He should be dressing like he's 17, you know? And and he's kind of just sitting there, not out loud, but just in his head, passing judgment on everybody as they walked by. And he, and he noticed that the more judgment he passed on people, the, more, the better he felt about himself. And Paul's saying that's what we do. You know, we're quick to point the finger at others, but slow to realize that when we point one finger at others, there's three pointing back at us, right? That, that we do the same things. He goes on in, uh, in verse 6 to say this. He, he says, he, that's talking about God, will render to each one according to his works. In other words, he will give you what you want. But then he says this, to those who by patience in well-doing seek for glory and honor and immortality, he will give eternal life. But for those who are self-seeking and do not obey the truth but obey unrighteousness, there will be wrath and fury. In other words, he says, if you behave yourself, you get eternal life. And if you don't, you don't. And uh, um, that, that sounds a little unusual to us, you know, because we, as, we as especially Lutheran Christians, we go, whoa, 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 wait a minute. I, I didn't think that was how it worked. I remember back, I used to teach seventh grade, uh, seventh grade religion class, and, and I do this unit every year on law and gospel. And, uh, and so at the end, there was a test, and a part of that test, there were about 50 different statements of things to do, right? And you had to mark them L for law, G for gospel, or B if it was both, Okay. And uh, so, the, so the, there was a statement on there on the test, and it said, "Promises eternal life." Now, in my answer Keith, the answer to that was, "What do you think? Gospel, right? The gospel promises eternal life." Well, well, one of the kids marked it B, both, so I marked it wrong, and, and, and he came up to me afterwards, and, and he said, uh, "He said, Mr. Schultz, I think you made a mistake," and I said, "Impossible." <laughs> and uh, he goes, "No, no, seriously, look." It, it, you know, it says promises eternal life, and I, I marked it B, it's both. I said, no, it's the gospel. The gospel promises eternal life. He says, no, the law does too. So what do you mean? He said, well, it says in the Bible, Jesus said, you know, um, uh, if, if you're perfect, then, you know, if you do this, you will live. Here Paul says that you, you do the right thing, you get eternal life. The law promises eternal life. And I had to admit he was right. I had to give him credit. But here's the problem. No one's ever been able to do that, right? We say that the the law does promise eternal life, but it's an empty promise. There's only one person in the history of the world who did well enough, who behaved well enough to get eternal life, and who was that? It was Jesus. He's the only one. Yeah, the the law promises if you do this, you will live. The problem is none of us do it, and that's what Paul is trying to help us see. In, uh, In verse 14 and 15, he says this, he says, for while Gentiles who do not have the law by nature do what the law requires, they are a law to themselves even though they do not have the law. And then this is where he says that the law is written on their hearts. He says their conscience bears witness. But then notice he does say that even our conscience, we can, we can trick our conscience. He says, and their conflicting thoughts accuse or even excuse them. Sometimes we can trick our conscience into, into accepting just about anything in our lives. And then he says, by the way, uh, later, that even the Jews have to worry about this. Look at verse 21, he says, "And then you who teach others, do you not teach yourself? While you preach against stealing, do you steal? Uh, you who say to what, that one, "You must not commit adultery, do you commit adultery, etc. Isn't it often true, by the way, that we are hardest judging people who make the same mistakes we make? You know, we, we look at others, and we're very hard on them when we see in them things that we wish we didn't do. That's what Paul's saying. Uh, Look ahead, then, at at 3. We're going to skip ahead to 3, verse 9. He says, well, what about we Jews? Are we better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. C.S. Lewis put it this way. He said, human beings all over the earth have this curious idea that they ought to behave in a certain way. Again, that was his argument that there is a God, that he's written that in our hearts. He says, and second even though they believe this, they don't, in fact, do it. We don't. And then then he starts in in verse 10, and, uh, and he has this long list where he grabs little quotes from the Old Testament to make sure that we all understand that every single one of us falls short of the glory of God, that none of us keep God's law. Listen to how he says this. He says, "No one is righteous, no, not one. No one understands. no one seeks God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. no one does good, not even one. Their throat is an open grave. They use their tongues to deceive, the venom of asps is under their lips, their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. their feet are swift to shed blood, in their paths are ruin and misery, and the way of peace they have not known. there is no fear of God before their eyes. Wow. Um, did you ever have a, a preacher or somebody say to you that you take John 3:16, you know, that beautiful summary of the gospel, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. And they say, Take that, but don't say God so loved the world, put your own name in there, you know? So God so loved Mark that he sent his only son, and that's really comforting, isn't it? What if we did that with what Paul wrote here? Mark is not righteous. Mark does not understand. Mark does not seek God. Mark has turned aside. He has become worthless. He does not do good, not even one. His throat is an open grave. There is venom of ass on his lips. His mouth is full of curses and bitterness. His feet is swift to shed blood. You get the idea. But Paul's right. We all sin. We all fall short of the glory of God. Look at verse 29. He says, Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in God's sight. That's the truth of the law. We're all sinners. We've all fallen short. But look at verse 21. I always tell people that, uh, that when you're reading Paul's letters, you have to look out for the big buts. They didn't laugh at that the last service either. I don't know what's up with that. <laughs> but, 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 but seriously, you, you need to look for when Paul says buts. And some of those buts are more important than others because what he's saying is, he's been saying very truthfully, all of us have sinned. All of us have fallen short of God's glory. The reason the world is a mess and God is mad is us. But, but there's good news, Paul says. He says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. He says, under the law, we've all sinned. He says, but now there is a righteousness of God apart from the law, though the law and the prophets bear witness to it, and this righteousness of God comes to us through faith in Jesus Christ. And he says, for there is no distinction. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is ours in Christ Jesus. I was trying to think of, of some way of illustrating this for you, some example to give you. And I'm gonna use a sports analogy. Sorry about that. I know I do that a lot, okay? But I think a lot of you know I love to golf. I, I'm passionate about golfing, love to do it. And, and right now, by the way, Jordan Spieth is my favorite golfer. I, I, he's a good kid, he's got a great golf swing. So imagine this imagine if I said, I want the swing of Jordan, okay? Instead of the righteousness of God, I want the swing of Jordan, you know? And so Jordan Spieth said, you know what, Mark, I'm going to take care of you. I'm going to come and I'm going to spend a year with you. And I'm going to teach you my swing. We're going to spend hours on the range together, me showing you my swing. And I'm going to golf with you so you can watch me and, and so that you can, you know, be inspired by watching me swing and, and, and learn from me as I swing. And, and, and by the end of the year, you will have the swing of Jordan. You'll be able to play golf as well as me. How do you think that would work out? Probably not so much, right? I might get a little better. I might actually learn a few things from him and get a little better, but but no matter what I do, I am not gonna have the swing of Jordan. He's like 27, I'm 60, right? He's flexible. I'm not, okay? The reality is there's nothing I can do no matter how hard I try to get that swing. See, a lot of people think that that's what Jesus came to do. He came to show us the righteousness of God. And Jesus said, don't worry about it. I know you want the righteousness of God. I'm going to help you. I'm going to be with you. I'm going to teach you every day how to, how to live like you're supposed to live. I'm going to, you're going to get to watch me live and be inspired by me. And by the end of the year, you're going to be as righteous as I am. How do you think that would work? It wouldn't. But what, what if Jordan Spieth could somehow miraculously just give me his swing? Now, oh, that would be cool, right? And he would take my swing. Bad for him, right? But, but folks, that's what Paul is saying God has done. No matter what Jesus did, no matter what an example he set for us, no matter how much he taught us, we could never be righteous, not on our own. But through his death on the cross, what he's done is he has given us his righteousness. That's what Paul means when he says, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested, has been given to us apart from the law. And it's a righteousness of God that comes through faith. It is through faith that we are given this gift of the perfect life of Jesus. And then it says this uh, it says, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. In other words, what he's saying is, it's not like God pretends we didn't sin, God takes our sin. I heard one pastor say it this way, um, that it was on the cross that the gospel, the the, um, the grace of God, and the justice of God met. You see, God doesn't just pretend sin didn't happen. He takes sin. He punishes sin on himself. And he gives us this gift of his life. And then in, in verse 31, he says this. He says, do we then overthrow this law, the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. In other words, if 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 we don't get saved by following the law, instead we get saved by this gift of God's grace. Is the law worthless? And he says, no. And you'll have to come back next week to find out why, okay? Because we're going to pick it up next week. But, but before I'm done, I, I want to go back to that cartoon again, because as I was thinking about it, there's one little tiny change you could make to this cartoon to make it right. In other words, we just said, Paul just taught us that God is not just sitting up in heaven with his finger hovering over the smite button, just waiting for an excuse to punish us, right? He doesn't do that. God doesn't punish us. He just lets us do what we want, and we punish ourselves. But what could you do to this cartoon to fix it? What if you took that key on the keyboard and erased the word smite on it and wrote the word love? Then it works, right? Then it works. God is just sitting there, just waiting to give us the gift of his love and grace. All we have to do is accept it. All we have to do is be willing to receive it. All we have to do is, through the faith that he gives us, receive that gift of the righteousness of God that he gives to us through Jesus. God's not waiting to punish you. He just wants to love you. Amen.